Welcome to this special summer episode of Translating COVID-19. I am Marta Arnaldi, Alumni Research Fellow at the Queen's College, University of Oxford. Today, I am thrilled to introduce a wonderful guest, Kirsten Oster, the Gladys Louise Fox Professor of English at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Welcome, Kirsten, and thank you for being here. Thank you, I'm delighted to be here. Kirsten is a Median Scholar, Health Researcher and Technology Analyst, as well as the Founder and Director of the Rice Medical Humanities Program and the Medical Futures Lab. Kirsten is the author of numerous publications, including two outstanding books, Medical Visions, Producing the Patient Through Film, Television and Imaging Technologies, and Cinematic Prophylaxis. Globalization and Contagion in the Discourse of World Health. At the moment, Kirsten is also working on a third book project entitled Quantified Health, Learning from Patient Stories in the Age of Big Data. I am incredibly fascinated and deeply inspired by Kirsten's ability to translate figures and data into meaningful stories. And I really could not feel more honored to talk to you today. So in this brief conversation, I would like to touch upon some of the paradoxes that you have explored in your volume, Cinematic Prophylaxis, published by Duke University Press in 2005. This book examines images of contagion through the lens of 20th century film history. It charts, and I quote, the changes and the alarming continuities in popular understandings of the connection between pathologized bodies and the global spread of disease, end quote, thus marking a turning point in the fields of visual culture, public health and medical humanities alike. So if I could choose a word to describe the ambitious scope of this volume, I would probably pick the adjective visionary as one that does justice to the books historical depth, prophetical undertones, and theoretical achievements. So now, given the invisible nature of bacteria and viruses, the visual cinematic lens that constitutes a paradox in its own right. Could you tell us a bit more about the chosen topic and methodology, and to what extent do you think is visual culture an apt medium to represent or if one prefers to translate the invisibility or contagion. Sure, and thank you so much for that lovely introduction. That was very nice. Um, the book came about um, as a result of a couple of confluences. So um, before I started grad school, um, I had taken a couple of years off um, between finishing undergrad and starting. And during one of those years, I worked as a research assistant in a uh, department of public health. And um, there I met a bunch of epidemiologists and I was really fascinated by the way they were, they were really storytellers. Like you, when, when you started talking with them, they didn't throw out lots of numbers at you. They told stories of how they essentially kind of traced pathways 
backwards in time and space to figure out the origins of a particular phenomenon, usually, you know, either a disease outbreak or maybe the source of a chronic disease or something. And then they would kind of walk you through how it evolved over time. So it became clear to me that they they were working with data and stories in a very integrated way, even though we don't really talk about or they don't really talk about what they do in terms of narrative per se. But from my perspective, that was clear. But this was also in the early 90s when HIV AIDS was a really huge global concern. And people were talking about it all the time. And um, But I was planning on going to grad school to study cinema and media. And um, I loved watching old movies. And I remember seeing The Andromeda Strain which uh, the original movie, it's been remade into TV shows and other movies, but the original version, which was made in the 70s, um, watching it at that moment, it seemed like it was about AIDS, but it obviously wasn't because it was made decades before the AIDS pandemic. And this kind of led me on this path where I started wondering, how is it that we have the same kinds of representational techniques for different kinds of disease outbreaks and what does that mean about the role of representation and the way that we think about disease so this this kind of led me into um the research that became the book cinematic prophylaxis and one of the things i started doing i became very curious as to whether representations that were made by people in the health sciences, like in public health or in medicine, whether they also had any commonalities or whether this was maybe just a Hollywood thing. Um, if it was just a Hollywood thing, I might have imagined, well, genres depend on repetition, right? With slight variations over time, et cetera. But then I started wondering, well, is this genre, you know, does it cross domains? Is it also perhaps in public health? And I started doing research on health films to see how they told stories and the kinds of things that they represented. And the thing that I started noticing that made it really clear to me the role, the unique role of visual media and visual culture was that there was this, it really came through in films about contagion. Because what you started seeing, what I started seeing was that even in films going back to the 1920s, the filmmakers, which sometimes included the U.S. Public Health Service, were trying to teach people to imagine that they could see invisible contagions with their naked eyes, even though, of course, they couldn't, so that they could kind of internalize the places or people or actions that could be the source of contagion. And it was very clear from even way back then that this was kind of a central preoccupation. You have to, and this is a problem, of course, that's with us right now. If only we could see viruses with our naked eye, it'd be very easy to know what was a dangerous place and what was not, right? And, and, and when we needed to take extra precautions and when we didn't and, and all these sorts of things. Um, so the thing is, cinema, you know, moving images, I should say more generally, um, has this ability through special effects to show us things, you know, whether it's like cartoons, animations, or whether it's more elaborate special effects, which over time became computer generated and that kind of thing. 
they can show us things that look like we can actually see them with our eyes because on the screen we can and that then allows us to imagine that we can see those things in the world so there's something very particular there and it also really requires motion like movement through space and time right because contagion is not a static thing it only occurs in space and time so you put those things together, the, the moving image occurs through space and time and can visualize things that we can't see with our naked eye, including, you know, blowing things up or, or speeding things up or slowing things down and all of those kinds of things. That makes it really a privileged medium that you can't, you can describe that in words, but to make the kind of, to make the invisible seem real in a material sense you need a kind of visual form that will allow you to manifest in that way yes thank you so much kirsten uh when i was you were talking i was particularly struck by the idea of the moving image as something that uh, uh, uh is transferred and happens across space and time. And uh, it is a, a, a peculiarity that is inherent to translation as well. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I was wondering to what extent can we um, think of uh, uh, the process of visualization as a process of translation, or are we going too far in uh, 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 allowing translation, the possibility of translation, you know, to, to cover uh, too, too many uh, uh, meanings of it. What do you think about it? Oh, I think that translation is a perfect term for that, especially when we're talking about, um, about creating visualizations of something that has a status in the world of quote-unquote objective fact, right? So when you think about um, public health communications, for example, um, they are supposed to be, you know, from the point of view of public health experts, um, science-based, okay? And so, you know, we can talk about the extent to which the discourse of objectivity is itself constructed, but nonetheless, the idea is that there is a fact, there's a scientific fact in the world that has been proven, or at least a hypothesis that is pretty strong, that needs to be then communicated to the general public. And this is widely recognized in science communication as a challenge because scientists communicate in a language uh, amongst themselves that's very different from the overall mode of discourse in, in public or in popular culture. And so the question there always is, Okay, how do you translate complex information that has many nuances to it and that has many caveats even perhaps into a form that the general public can not only understand but can remember and can act on? So for all of these things, there's there's been a lot of research about the way that we need to think about the the visual dimensions and the narrative dimensions of this kind of work because 
we know, though this hasn't fully been embraced worldwide, I would say, and, and by all communicators, but researchers know that having a scientist stand up and present a lecture with all of the relevant data to the general public is not a good way to communicate information <laughs> to the general public, right? We also know there's really interesting research out there about how much more effective fiction can be than nonfiction in communicating scientific information, health information. Some research has even looked at the role of fictional characters on popular television shows, for example, like Grey's Anatomy, those kinds of shows, and as well as soap operas and that sort of thing, um, because viewers feel that they already know and trust those figures. And then they receive the information that is presented as part of a narrative rather than as a set of items that have to be memorized in some way. So this brings in the question of trust and the extent to which forms of representation do or do not reach us in a way that we find convincing um, and to a large extent, that sense of an image being convincing has to do with a sense of trust in it, but which itself is a very complex and very culturally specific concept that is not at all universal. So there, there, there are many layers to that to, to kind of pull apart and dissect, but the, the extent to which there's kind of a, uh, a layering of how information is being presented, by whom, in what format, that all really plays into the, the extent to which we can make good sense of public health or medical communications or representations. Thank you, Kirsten. Yes. Um, as you have explained right now, contagion poses a series of translation problems. And at the same time, however, it also confronts us with questions of containment and surveillance, which seem to be at odds with the translational dimension of economics, politics and culture in today's society. Could you give us some examples, perhaps, of the ways in which modern cinema has negotiated the tension between globalization on the one hand and the control of national boundaries on the others? And what is the connection, if any, between contagion and conspiracy? And how is this connection unfolding in the current geopolitical discourses? Yes, thank you. That, this is a really interesting question because national boundaries have, have been a central preoccupation of contagion media for a very long time. And the idea that we can that, that we can construct boundaries, whether it's around a community, a village, uh, a kingdom, um, or a, a continent, or an island, um, or a nation, and thereby keep uh, the healthy people in and keep the infected people out. That, that is a very old idea that has come through contagion media. Um, the challenge, and I would answer this now more in relation to um, contagion media rather than contagion cinema per se, um, the, the, the challenge is partly that the ways that we 
access and um, share information, of course, now are completely networked and do not respect national boundaries of any kind, except in cases where the flow of certain forms of information are, are blocked by, by state powers, for example. But by and large, the international flow of information and ideas is um, it, it defines the ways that we access information and images now. So um, that includes cinema as well as everything else. But what, but one of the things this means is that when we think about image-based media, actually most people in the world access information through video forms rather than through text. So that still is a very prominent and prevalent way that information circulates. But those videos, unlike the public health films of uh, that I wrote about in Cinematic Prophylaxis, um, the videos that people get their information from, which could be on YouTube or Facebook or any place, um, they're not necessarily vetted by some centralized authority. They're not necessarily science-driven. Um, and they are capable of spreading ideas, including conspiracy theories, um, in ways that actually really challenge the kinds of information that previously organizations like the WHO had conveyed through films, like the films I wrote about in Cinematic Prophylaxis. So in the 50s, the WHO could make a film about a disease outbreak and send it out all over the world. And there wouldn't be a lot of competing narratives or visualizations. That would be the representation. And that allowed those kinds of representations a kind of authority um, that they just don't have anymore because they're competing with all these other videos, including conspiracy theories. So actually, you know, I wrote um, a paper that was published just earlier this summer um, that I'd written a, a couple of years ago about Zika virus and conspiracy videos. And it was really interesting to me to reflect on that piece now because as I looked it over, I thought that I could go through and replace Zika with COVID and almost the exact same argument would, would hold. And, and the argument of that paper was that one of the reasons that conspiracy theories, especially as conveyed through visual media, through moving images, um, one of the reasons that they pose such a challenge now in relation to contagion uh, disease outbreaks um, is that those films actually exploit representational techniques that are much more persuasive than the media produced by science-driven organizations like the WHO or other kinds of uh, health health departments or health ministries around the world. So in that paper, I looked at two different um, videos, which were the most widely circulated on Facebook in a particular month of time. It was, I think, June of uh, leading up to the the Olympics in, um, in Brazil, um, when Zika virus was really raging. And um, 
And the the one video that was considered to be sort of legitimate, it was a WHO press conference and it went on for an hour and it was unedited and it was just scientists sitting at tables presenting facts. The other one, which was a conspiracy video, it was, I think, six or eight minutes long. It had music. It was highly edited. It had big words in colors with sort of graphics around them and images, visual images to complement the argumentation. And the whole thing built an argument step by step that um, didn't make any sense from a scientific point of view, but rhetorically was incredibly persuasive and most of all was very emotional. And I think that here, this is where, this is a dimension of visual representation and more generally representation of contagion that is extremely important to consider is the role of emotion. Because when we think about contagion, it's something that it's very hard to treat rationally. Mm -hmm. It's something that by definition, feels threatening, right? So that's already a, a type of emotional response on some level. Um, and so the combination of a contagious disease outbreak and a conspiracy theory, really, it, it really amplifies that reliance on emotion, emotional argumentation in a way that when you compare that to how an organization like the WHO or the CDC, how they communicate, it falls completely flat. Yes. Yes, I totally agree with you. Contagion, in a sense, enhances that gap between yeah. science and vision and evidence, and yeah. on the other hand, the irrationality of what you cannot see, and therefore you cannot know. So right. yes, thank you so much for the illuminating this uh, this uh, mysterious, in a sense, way in which uh, we access information and process them. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, talking about uh, health data more broadly, since you also touched upon uh, this uh, uh, issue, and uh, as I said, you are working on a project uh, uh, that uh, uh, deals with uh, uh, this topic. Uh, there is a final paradox I would like to discuss with you and to propose to you. And the paradox deals with inherently qualitative, cultural, and as we said, narrative nature of quantitative data about health and disease. In a sense, we can say we are made not just of cells, but of stories. So what do you think is that meaningful story that the current infection rates, recovered cases, and death tolls are telling us. How can we translate the language of statistics into relevant language that can help us articulate, comprehend, and perhaps even overcome the coronavirus crisis? Yes, this, this, this is the question that preoccupies me right now more than ever, not only because I'm working on a book about this, about the relation between data and stories, but also because in looking at the contagion media of the COVID outbreak, it is so apparent how 
data driven the visualizations are, um, which isn't always the same as how as the sort of policy based responses. Um, I've been very struck in the current outbreak by how popular the COVID dashboards are. The COVID dashboards and the maps. And this is partly um, to do with certain technical affordances of the internet and of other open access software um, for mapping that um, are available now that hadn't really been available to quite the same degree for um, other large outbreaks around the world in recent years. Um, so I find it really interesting that there are so many COVID maps and so many um, data visualizations to the extent that this phrase flattened the curve, right? It's a, it's a ubiquitous phrase which only references a data visualization. Like it actually doesn't mean anything else in the world. That curve is a statistical model. Right. There is there's no curve out there in the world that we're you know, that's that's three dimensional that we're going to flatten. Yet we're all talking about flattening the curve. Right. And and so I'm really struck by the the juxtaposition of that preoccupation on the one hand. And then on the other hand, in especially in the United States, the absence of images of the people actually suffering from the disease, especially in hospitals, and this is partly due to restrictions on who can go in the hospitals, partly for safety, partly for privacy. Um, but also, there have been very few images circulating of the the total numbers of deaths and the numbers of disabilities. And even more than that, I was really dismayed by how long it took for people for the discussion of the racial health disparities, especially in the US, to finally become a really central part of the discussion. And to me, when you think about this question of what are the stories that the data are telling us? Um, or which stories could we pull out that would make a meaningful difference? I think that in the US, most states were not actually recording racial, race and ethnicity data as they were recording infections and deaths. And once that started to become apparent that in fact, you could track severity of outbreaks in relation to racial and ethnic lack of access to not just healthcare, but also to high paying jobs that would allow them to not be in public so much and other resources that could help protect these communities from exposures, it starts to actually tell a story about who is vulnerable and why that becomes a bigger story when you start to recognize that in fact, in this outbreak and in every outbreak, we, the general public, are really only as safe and healthy as the most vulnerable among us. So 
the story becomes different when you start to see that there are certain parts of the curve, right, that needs to be flattened that are invisible by design at certain times and then hyper visible also by design at other times. So what I mean is that the extent to which racial communities, racialized communities were suffering from COVID was not evident early on. And as it became evident, then that narrative was politicized in such a way that those communities were, from the point of view of certain politicians, blamed for their own illness. Which brings us back to a long history of racialized contagion, which I, which I talk about in Cinematic Prophylaxis. And there are, there are some different features to the way that that has played out in COVID. Um, but I think that one of the things that we're seeing now is that there's kind of a, a growing recognition that in order to truly establish policies that will help us get beyond this outbreak, we have to actually give respect and care to the communities that are usually not respected and cared for. Otherwise, this will never end. This will never end. So that really then, it, it kind of flips a certain element of contagion media that has been with us for a very long time, which has tended to treat racialized bodies as these external others that threaten the nation and that are carriers of disease and that should be kept out to keep the internal pure and clean and healthy. That's like a very old rhetoric of disease and contagion that has been visualized in many public health films and, and also was part of this in, in a different kind of racialization, which was xenophobia in, in relation to people from China, people from Asian countries in general. Um, so that's another kind of piece of this whole story. But I think that in the current moment, you know, looking at this, in, and again, I'm, I'm talking about the U.S. situation largely because it, this has certainly played out differently in different parts of the world. Um, I, so I think that in the case of the United States, telling the stories that actually are hidden by the statistics, um, specifically the questions of who are the most vulnerable and why, it sheds a light on society and what is valued in that society that then gives us uh, some some possible ways to respond to the pandemic, which force social acknowledgement of things that are usually hidden. So I think here too, you know, the the framing of kind of visibility and an in, an invisibility, and the extent to which translation of different forms um, can illuminate things that you can't see. So the statistics don't tell us the stories of who suffers and why, but really digging into them and seeing who is actually suffering and what and why they are in that position in the first place 
um, shows us a path forward. Yes. Whether or not there is a social and political will to take it is a different question. But I think that's one of the things that telling the stories that are embedded in the data can do for us. But it's also one of the things that the preoccupation with data visualizations hides because that doesn't put a face on it and it doesn't show us the kind of disproportionate pain and suffering that has existed across our society as a whole. Yes. Thank you, Kirsten, because this reflection really sheds light onto, in a sense, the cultural dimension of science, because in a sense, figures and data do not exist in a vacuum. They're always interpreted, created, and presented. Yes. And also, in a sense, uh, also illuminates um, the core of translation as an entity, a concept, a reality that lie, lies in between uh, uh, um, transfers in space and time, mm -hmm. questions of trust, uh, but also uh, uh, the attitude we have towards otherness and foreignness. Mm -hmm. And what and who cannot be seen. So thank you so much uh, for your tremendous contribution to this series. And uh, thank you for illuminating some of the paradoxes in which we are living today and for showing us ways of visualizing the invisible biocultural paths of contagion. And as always, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>